We were talking about the Gospel of Mark, and what we've been doing uh, is looking at different encounters that Jesus had with people in the Gospel of Mark. And so we've kind of been hopping around a little bit, and we're about halfway through. This is going to be a 12-week series. And so uh, today, if you, if you brought your Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 7, uh, which if you were here with us last week, we were also in Mark chapter 7. So we are going to actually pick up right where we left off. We're going to be in Mark chapter 7, verse 24. If you don't have a Bible with you today... We put the passage up there for you to follow along, um, but we do also have some Bibles available at our table, and so if you don't own a Bible or you want a Bible in the version that, that I preach from, which is the English Standard Version, those are on our table right outside the doors there, and those are free for the taking, so uh, please grab one of those on your way out. But let's, uh, let's hear God's Word. I'm going to read uh, Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 24, uh, going down through verse 30. So this is, this is the Word of the Lord. <clears throat> And from there he arose, that's Jesus, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of the living God. Let's go to him in prayer and ask him to help. Father in heaven, we come now again to your word, knowing that contained in it are the words of life. Lord, there are many things vying for our attention and telling us what to believe and how to act. And Lord, we humbly come now to your word and we ask that you teach us. Lord, without your help, we cannot understand this. Lord, without your help, our eyes are blind, our ears are deaf, our hearts are hard. And so, Lord, I pray that you would move now, that you would use your servant today to clearly communicate the truths taught in your scriptures, and that you would change the people that are gathered here in this room for your own glory. And we ask these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. It's Valentine's Day, in case you didn't know that, happened to fall on a Sunday today, so if you haven't made appropriate um, uh, you know, preparations for your loved ones, you're welcome for the heads up on that. You've got a little bit of time. If you're on your phone doing things during, during the service, I'll know what you're doing, but came across an article this week. Um, it's in, uh, it was in The Onion. <laughs> so, so some of you know about the onion. Now listen, for filter's purpose, the onion is not a reliable resource all the time. It's a little vulgar sometimes. I've cleaned up today's article for our church uh, audience, but found an article on Valentine's Day. For those of you that are not familiar with the onion, it is a satire uh, writing uh, uh, source, so it's completely facetious. But here, here, here was the title of the article. It said, uh, the title of the article is, Nation's Girlfriends Admit Absolutely Everything is Riding on Valentine's Day. Confirming that it's all come down to this, the nation's girlfriends admitted Thursday that despite anything they may have said or implied in the past, absolutely everything hinges on the outcome of this Valentine's Day. 
describing the evening as the, quote, indisputable make-or-break moment of our relationships, end quote, the girlfriends explain that if Valentine's Day fails in any way to live up to their standards, or if at any point they sense that not enough effort went into the occasion, then things are as good as over. I've basically funneled all my hopes for the future to this one night in which my boyfriend must achieve perfection or else we're through, Virginia Beach area girlfriend Jenna Boyce, 27, told reporters, noting that she will be able to tell immediately if her boyfriend cheaps out on the flowers he has bought her or throws his gift, his gift together at the very last minute. I expect an amazing, thoughtful, nearly flawless experience, one that is simultaneously fun and romantic and a night I will remember for the rest of my life. Anything short of that, and I walk. I know I've stated in the past that I believe Valentine's Day is dumb and that it's a commercial holiday and that it doesn't matter to me, but I was lying, Boyce added, <laughs> in total concurrence with every other girlfriend in the country. I, in fact, care more about this than anything by far. The nation's girlfriends admitted to reporters and to anyone who cared to know that nothing their boyfriends have ever done for them in the past, including any and all good deeds previously rendered, will matter in the slightest if they don't make it a day to remember. The assembled women then confirmed that they expect the following things today, and they, quote, don't care if these expectations make them appear either old-fashioned, demanding, or unrealistic. Here's the expectations. Flowers, repeated romantic gestures and signs of physical affection, compliments, assorted gifts of an emotionally resonant nature, a dinner that is sufficiently high-end yet also warm and intimate, two to three fond recollections of the relationship's origins, an outfit, and attention to personal dress on the part of the boyfriend that shows he cares. No mention of money or cost and a minimum of 25 utterances of the word love. The nation's girlfriends also confirmed that if their boyfriends are able to go all out and make the day truly special, then there is no reason why they couldn't make a similar effort on every day of the year also. I read that comical, hopefully overwhelming article for some of you uh, to make light of Valentine's Day. Uh, love it or hate it, you may, you may be here today and you, you hate Valentine's Day, you may love Valentine's Day. But the reality is that a relationship like this one described in this article is quite frankly exhausting. It's not only exhausting that will eventually crush you, that the relationships that are based on performance of another ultimately will not only exhaust you but crush you. Well, the good news for us today is that our relationship with God is nothing of the sort, that there is no performance of perfection as described in in this uh, silly article uh, like that. Today, we get to see the way a woman approaches Jesus and the way that he responds to her, perhaps in a shocking and new way to you. Today, as we look at this passage, here's the things that I want us to, to draw out of, of the passage today. We're going to be talking about um, the, 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 the main thing of the idea that the most unlikely unworthy and undeserving people can approach God. You see, receiving the grace of God that's found in Jesus Christ requires nothing less than our neediness and nothing more than Jesus's willingness. And so when our neediness meets Jesus's willingness, God's grace changes everything about us. And that's what we'll see today in our passage. So here's the three things I want us to draw out and it's talking about the grace that God draws us to through Jesus. And so first we're going to look at where grace pursues us. Secondly, we're going to look at why grace pursues us. 
And then third, we're going to look at when grace pursues us. So where, why, and when grace pursues us if you're taking notes. First, let's consider where grace pursues us in the first two verses there, uh, verses 24 through 26. Uh, the, the, the narratives in Mark's gospel are always set. They, they always give us some sort of setting for us to really enter into the story on some level. And so the setting shows us uh, a number of things about what's going to take place in this encounter. Um, there, there's three places that, that I see uh, Grace pursuing us uh, in this woman's life specifically, but also I think there's going to be some direct connections to our own lives. And, and so let me, let me kind of make three sub points under where Grace pursues us. And the first first place that we see grace pursuing us is in verse 24, is in the quiet places of our lives. Uh, the text tells us that Jesus rose up and he left towards Tyre and Sidon. Now this is a, a coastal city, uh, it's north of where he's been, and it's a Gentile region. And so he pulls into Tyre and Sidon, and immediately Jesus shows that he wants to get away from the crowds. Now, if you've been with us in, in prior sermons, I've mentioned the significance of crowds in Mark's gospel, that primarily where Jesus made himself known was not in the hustle and bustle of all the crowds and all of the hoopla surrounding him, but it was actually in the private and intimate settings that he set for himself, and that's exactly what we see here. In verse 24, you see that Jesus entered a house, and he didn't want anyone to know. Uh, commentators make mention of this, that, that Jesus was having this messianic secret. In other words, he was trying to keep what he was doing under wraps. And, and that's very true, that, that Jesus was on a timeline, that he had come to accomplish the will of his Father, namely to live the perfect life, to die the death on the cross, and then to rise again from death. It was all part of the plan, but it was all according to a timeline. And so we see Jesus here enter this intimate, quiet setting of a private home. And that's where grace really becomes overwhelming to someone. I wonder, I wonder where those moments in our lives are, like where that quiet place where God's grace can overcome us truly is, because the reality is that we are so overwhelmed by the, the world around us, and we are so distracted and constantly bombarded by a message that is completely contradictory to what Jesus is trying to show us. And so what, what we see here is, and in our own lives is that we are unable to see uh, and to receive God's grace when we're unable to hear it. And so always in the, in the gospel accounts, Jesus is always intimately, privately, quietly approaching his people with his grace. And that's exactly what we see here. Uh, the second place that we see uh, Jesus' grace pursuing this woman and, and us by extension is in the low places of our lives. Look at verse 25. This woman had come to an end of herself. Immediately, this woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him, and she came and she fell at Jesus' feet. Now, if you're a parent here, you know this kind of love. You know what parental love will do. It will throw everything aside for the good of your children, right? I mean, we, we have that kind of inclination and that tug at our hearts. We get that. But, but the best part about this is that this woman knew that, uh, she knew that Jesus was all she needed because he was all that she had at this point. There was, there was nothing left for her. And so she had caught wind that Jesus was in the area doing ministry, and she broke the rules, as it were, to go into this house and to beg for, for grace. She goes to the low place of his feet. 
Now, something that's remarkable about that is, do you know the only other place in Mark's gospel where somebody falls at Jesus' feet? You probably don't because you haven't been studying this passage all week, but the good news is I do. In Mark chapter 5, I believe, the only other place where someone falls at Jesus' feet in Mark's gospel is Jairus. Jairus was the, the ruler of a synagogue. He was the president. He was a highly religious, stout man of, of you know, clout in his community. And he fell at Jesus' feet because his, he had a sick child as well. And he fell down at his feet asking and begging for mercy. Well, now here, two, later, two chapters later, we see the exact extreme opposite of that. We see a, a woman... A, uh, an irreligious pagan woman at the feet of Jesus. Now, if that doesn't give us a picture of the extremity of how God's grace can conquer anyone, I don't know what does. At the feet of Jesus is this highly religious male, and at the feet of Jesus is this low, irreligious pagan woman. And so we see that, that God's grace comes to us when we fall low. And we're unable to receive that grace when we're unable to go low, to fall at the feet. That's what, that's what Jesus is showing us here, that that's, that's exactly where, where grace is found. The third place that, that grace pursues us is, is in the honest places of our lives. So the quiet places, the low places, and now the honest places. Listen, I've, mentioned, I've already made mention of who this woman is. She was a Gentile. Now, a Gentile was a, a person of non-Jewish descent. Any, any non-Jewish person was considered a Gentile. This was a, a pagan an unbeliever. This was not her Messiah whom she was expecting. Not only was she a Gentile, as the text identifies, but she was a Syrophoenician. This was like a pagan of all pagans. This was a Canaanite. These were God-despisers. She would have been familiar with Judaism, but she certainly would not have been a, pra a practitioner of it. And then she was a woman. In this culture and in this time, women were essentially second-class citizens. They were given no, no emphasis. They were given no clout. They were given no status. And so here we see this woman, and she comes to Jesus in all honesty. She does not come in a pretentious way. She comes bringing nothing to the table and begging for everything from the table. We, too, are unable to rec receive grace when we're unwilling to be honest with who we are. It's what the gospel calls us to. It calls us to see who we are truly in light of who God is. And he's going to show us who we are later in this passage. So let's, let's continue moving through it as we look at why grace pursues us in verses uh, 27 down through 28. Uh, I didn't grow up much of a reader. I'm, I'm still, I fight to read. Um, but one of the greatest things about fiction writing, you know, um, fairy tales and Lord of the Rings and all, all these kinds of books that we're supposed to be reading that are good for our minds, the, the most powerful thing about reading is the ability to put yourself in the story Right? I remember as a kid, I, I couldn't track down the title of them, uh, but there were some books that always had this pick-your-own-ending type of thing, right? Like you could like, deviate and just say, well, this is the ending I want. And it, it was just this empowering thing that, that you got to come into the story and you got to really enter into it and change it in some ways. Um, Jesus used stories a lot. Uh, if you're familiar with Jesus' teaching, you know he used what's called parables. A parable was simply a, a common, ordinary experience that tra translated and, and communicated truth to people. And so what Jesus does here is he tells a story. He actually sets this up for this lady. This is his response to her falling at his feet. Look at verse 27 again. 
He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Listen, here's what, here's what the essence of this teaching is. It, it should be shocking to us. He's saying, kids eat before dogs in this house, and you're a dog. That's what he told this woman. You are a dog. Now, that was not uncommon in that time to refer to Gentiles as dogs. But the unique thing about this, and, and the way of paradox in this, is that the word that Jesus used is the word for puppy. It was like a house pet. Now, now, when you think puppy and you think house pet, you're like in a whole different area than, than they were. Listen, these people did not treat their dogs like we treat our dogs. Um, we are taking our dogs on airplanes these days, guys. I mean, that's, that's crazy to even think of. Anyway, side note. But so, so to call a dog in that culture, and even in our, to call a person a dog in that culture, and even in our culture, was shocking. I mean, we don't go around calling people dogs, right? Uh, the, the essence of the story is this. Jesus is showing that his primary concern was for the Jewish nation, that he had come as their promised deliverer. He was the Jewish Messiah. He was the redeemer that was coming to uh, redeem his people. And he's saying, listen, this food, the food of salvation, the food of grace is, is for Jewish people first. And, and dogs don't get fed before the Jewish people. And listen, the, the, the rightly so, I mean, as true as that is, the response of the woman is everything in the story. I mean, her response could have so easily been one of offense, right? One of entitlement. Well, well that's not fair, Jesus. But, but she, what does she do? Well, look at verse 28. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. What she does is she goes into the story. She enters the parable. She accepts her condition as a dog, and she continues to beg for mercy. Listen, this woman recognized Jesus for who he was. She called him Lord, and then she recognized herself for who she is. She says, yes, but I'm a dog, and I'm willing to eat the crumbs. This is the first person in Mark's gospel to get the good news about Jesus and to respond rightly. This woman does it. She's at his feet, unhindered, unentitled, and she's falling and begging for grace. You see, grace greets us when entitlement leaves us. The why of grace is best discovered when we see there simply is no obligation on God's part to give us grace. In fact, it, it actually goes and cuts directly against the grain of grace. If it's something that we expect and we feel entitled to, it undermines the entire thing. Um, this woman knew she had no seat at the table. She knew it. She knew she had nothing to offer him by way of descent. She was not Jewish. She was not a male. She was not religious. She was not a lawkeeper. She knew who she was, and she came to the table nonetheless. We live in a culture... Uh, that is all about asserting rights. Right? We're Americans. We're constitutional. Like, don't take my rights from me, right? That is ingrained in who we are. And I think a lot of that it bleeds into Christianity. It bleeds into our faith that the, we think that there is something fundamentally about us that should make us acceptable to receive grace, right? So asserting rights sounds like this. Give me what I deserve based on my goodness, Right? It's this entitlement kind of captivity about us, that there is something that I have done, 
whether it be today or my whole entire life or, or the, the scales of life, I've done something so I've earned it. That's internally ingrained into who we are, but, but this passage is showing us something completely different. It's not showing us how to assert rights. It's showing us what rightless assertiveness looks like. In other words, this woman doesn't cower away that she's a dog and, and leaves Jesus' presence and says, woe is me. She continues to be boldly claiming and asking for grace. Why? Because instead of saying, give me what I deserve based on my goodness, this is what her heart sounded like. Give me what I don't deserve based on your goodness. Give me what I do not deserve based on your goodness, Jesus. That is what she's asserting. That's what she's asking for. And so the reason that grace pursues us is because inherently grace fundamentally goes against who we are. People that want to earn our rights ourselves. And this woman gets it. She gets that grace cannot be earned. She gets that the grace that she's asking for does not come through her own goodness. So what happens when that kind of grace meets us? What happens when God's grace is extended to the most unlikely, unworthy, undeserving type of people? Well, look at verses 29 to 30. Uh, it says, and he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Now, throughout the series, we've been talking about how all of these signs and these miracles that Jesus does is something that's pointing us to the coming kingdom. It's pointing us to the kingdom where all things will be delivered into Jesus' hands. It's pointing us to where there will be no more sickness, no more sadness, no more pain, no more death. All of those things are a glimpse of that. And in Jesus' simple statement, in fact, in Matthew, which is just a parallel account of Mark's gospel. In Matthew, Jesus says that he's never seen faith like that. This is what faith looks like. This woman at her feet asserting the goodness of Jesus in grace. And so when our neediness and this woman's neediness meets Jesus' willingness, well, what happens? Well, grace changes everything. You can be sure that this woman's life was changed forever. Her, her, her circumstances, her external circumstances of her daughter with the demon were healed. But do you think that's the extent of it? Do you think that this woman who, who was at the feet weeping at Jesus, asking for healing, thought that the healing was only in the external, was only in the physical of her daughter? He did it by extension. He wasn't even, the daughter wasn't with them. So he heals this woman simply by saying it is so. And you can only imagine the implications that had on this woman's life. How grace changed everything about her. You see, the perfect storm for grace is found in this story. Her neediness, Jesus' willingness, and the story of grace was now the defining story of this woman's life. And so should it be ours. You see, <clears throat> grace changes everything about us. It's, it, it is a game changer. Uh, if you survey your light, life in the light of God's grace, what you know to be true about yourself in the light of what you know to be true about God will change everything about you. That if you see Jesus for who he says he is, namely the redeemer of all mankind, the redeemer of God's people, and yet you know he came to rescue someone like you, you know the proclivities of your heart. You know what's hidden in there, and so does he. Yet he loves you the same. That changes everything about you. You see, the climax of grace for us is, is seen in a story like this, but, but more so it's seen in what Jesus has done for us. 
When we talk about the death of Christ, in fact, in our song of preparation, we, we, we sang in Christ alone, it talks about how uh, the fullness of God, uh, his wrath was satisfied. Like when we begin to absorb a truth like that, that there is no condemnation for those who are found in Christ, that, that regardless of what you've done in the past, regardless of what you've done today, and regardless of what you'll do in the future, that God's grace is just that good, that it is just that sufficient, it begins to, to change you. Um, Jesus, he said many last words, last prayers, or even some call them many sermons on the cross. And one of those um, sayings is when the Roman soldiers were putting him on the cross and they were stripping him of their clothes to fulfill a prophecy, actually. They didn't realize it, but they were taking his clothes and casting lots for them. And in the midst of that, he cried out to his father and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus, being punished by Roman soldiers in the midst of that, asks for their forgiveness. Who knows a grace like that? Not me. I don't know if, about you, but I could commend that, that Jesus' grace was the game changer for them. Um, all of us approach God in, in, in many different ways. And I think this passage shows us the right angle or the right approach to coming to God. Um, what, is your, what is your heart's bent? Is your heart's bent towards earning God's affirmation and acceptance? Is, is, it, is it in that moment when you have failed him miserably, whether you've done something you know you should have done, or maybe you've left something undone that perhaps you should have made right? In that moment, is your inclination to assert your rights and to do better or to fall at his feet and beg for grace. Because what this passage is showing us is that begging for crumbs under the table is the way we're supposed to come to God. That the food on God's table was reserved for the Jewish people, but the dogs eat the crumbs, and the crumbs are enough. And so... Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is my deepest hope and my deepest prayer that we would be those dogs under the table looking for crumbs. Because if we think we have a right to sit at that table on our own merit, on our own effort, on our own deeds, we have foolishly mistaken ourselves. Falling at Jesus' feet is for everyone. The highly religious male Jairus, and the lowly, irreligious female, this unnamed, irrelevant in the larger scope of, of, of Scripture who shows us what faith looks at, falling at Jesus' feet, begging him for grace. May we be a people that do just that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we see pictures in the Bible of people, and um, sometimes we disconnect. We don't see how they relate to us. But Lord, uh, I pray that, that we would see ourselves in this story today, that we would put ourselves in it, and we would see that we too, like this woman, are simply beggars looking for a crumb. And so, Lord, I, I believe there's people here today that are, that are hungry. Um, they've tried the religion thing. They've tried to appease your anger towards them and they think that perhaps if they just go to church enough or do the right things throughout the week enough that you would 
shine your love upon them. Um, Lord, I pray that you would remove that from them and that you would put them in this story at the feet of Jesus. You'd put all of us there. That we would strip ourselves of the self-righteousness that we've built up on our own and that we would throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus and that you would uh, feed us a crumb of grace because we believe that that is sufficient. Lord, would you work grace into our hearts? Would you change everything about us and would you define and write our stories based on grace for your glory and for the good of your people? And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.